0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Adam
1: Carrington, reviving what he calls the Christian dignity of politics. More of the history of Christianity and the polities that have been influenced by Christianity, especially in the West, have seen politics as a high, noble, and good thing that should be participated in by Christians and should be infused with the principles that we get from the Bible.
0: Adam Carrington, next. Politics is not regarded well in some Christian circles. It's often seen as greatly compromised and even a realm some say believers shouldn't be involved in. Dr. Adam Carrington, professor of politics at Hillsdale College, counters those views in his piece, Reviving the Christian Dignity of Politics. Dr. Carrington, what prompted you to write about this subject?
1: It was both academic and real world. Uh, uh, Academically, I had read some of the church uh great theologians of the church who had talked about the dignity of politics spoken of it in a way that i really hadn't heard uh, today when we hear discourse about it and that connection to today uh, was also important because i would hear a lot of denigrating of politics and speaking of it only in the negative and not just the negative in the sense of that this politician or this era is bad, but almost as if politics is inherently dirty and low and not really befitting a child of God, and just didn't see that in the history of the church or in, or in scripture, and prompted me to say this might be a good time to maybe discuss it in a way that other people could engage with.
0: And, and right at the top here is we're going to be talking about reviving the Christian dignity of politics. It's just interesting to note, I, I took a look at uh, a relatively recent poll that looked at uh, s- sort of the uh, the least to the most trusted Occupations and and politicians didn't fare terribly well.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, they're all probably right there with used car salesmen and uh, a few other, or maybe bureaucrats. Well, or uh, I think you could fill in some of those 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 blanks. Yeah, and and when I wanted to write this, I, I didn't want to say again that. There aren't any politicians that lie or that there aren't any that are morally compromised. We certainly can that would be foolish. We, you can see all sorts of examples of sin pervading that occupation. But uh, again, I, I, I saw people talking in, in the past. Uh, one example would be uh, the theologian John Calvin. I, I remember thinking, I haven't heard anyone say something like the following, civil authority is in the sight of God, not only sacred and lawful, but the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all stations in mortal life and saying, all right, what theological background, what scriptural background informed that great theologian to say something like that, being that even the Bible itself gives a dignity to politics, a dignity that extends, I think, from God's rule itself. And I've often heard uh,
0: the encouragement for believers to become involved in politics in one way or another, voting, but to become involved in actually in the political process, to be salt and light in that area. And interestingly enough, uh, it's easy to forget this, but you write that there are those who advise believers actually to avoid involvement in politics for kind of the reasons that you've given that it's it's too compromised and it's not a place for, for Christians to be involved with.
1: Yeah, you can look at the Anabaptist tradition, which has made it a principle to not participate at all in politics. And then I think you have some people that maybe they don't go that far. They see that you have to engage in citizenship to some basic degree, but hold your nose, vote, roll your eyes, and then move on. And one point I think that that undermines or that doesn't respect is that ultimately scripture says God is the founder of politics. He is the founder of it in general. I think establishing politics as the way that we operate in community together, that we operate under laws together, the way that we live together, but also particular leaders and regimes that he puts them in place as Romans 13 articulates famously. And therefore it's You you would be saying something you don't want to say about God if you said that it's inherently dirty and low, because if he has founded it, if he has established it, then it is ultimately foundationally good, and anything you would attribute bad to it would be just our corruptions. So, Romans 13 would be
0: one of the foundational biblical passages to, to show that God has ordained the political institutions, governments, and those that govern.
1: Yes, that would be to, to to say that human rule is the case, and I think there's even a prerequisite to that that you see in other passages, which is that as God himself, God, and this is a point I tried to make in the article, that it's not just that God is like a ruler, like a king, like a lawgiver. He is those things. He is the ultimate and perfect example of someone who engages, a being that engages in politics. He makes a law. He enforces it. He is the Lord of hosts, as he is called. So therefore, he he even engages in military affairs, <laughs> right? And and we see in him a certain pattern that is, I think, expected of human rulers. I think there's some limitations to that we can talk about, obviously. We're not God mm-hmm. nor our rulers. But uh, uh, when it talks about God's throne being established in righteousness and in justice. The the ultimate purpose, I think, of human politics is righteousness and justice, and trying to realize it as best human beings can in a political community. That it's the exercise of power under law, and God gives a law and exercises power uh, within his own law. And that therefore there is something in human rule that images or, uh, you know, a pale image as anything uh, of God is that it's in human beings, but images what he does. And therefore, when God establishes us uh, human rule, he is uh, giving us also a pattern for it in his, the way he's exercised his own rule. And that's why he's talked about in very political terms, especially in the Old Testament.
0: Well, your piece is reviving the Christian dignity of politics. So that word reviving uh, tends to imply that, uh, are you saying there was a time that politics was uh, self-consciously infused with Christian dignity?
1: Yes, I think you can look at the history of the church and look at, especially once you you get to um, uh, the medieval times, you can see uh, the the you know Thomas Aquinas, the theologian, talking about the dignity of politics and saying there is an art to it that is worth studying. There is an art to it that involves figuring out what is noble and righteous and just under God. You can see it in the Reformation. The Reformation did not diverge from that. With what Calvin said, I also quote uh, a lesser-known theologian that I think should be better known, Peter Martyr Vermigli. Um, I think if if you go across the the, the whole expanse, um, more of Christian of the history of Christianity and the polities that have been influenced by Christianity, especially in the West, have seen politics as a high noble and good thing that should be participated in by Christians and should be infused with the principles that we get from the Bible when participating in that. So I think the, the low down dirty politics view is actually a minority view in the history of Christianity, even if it might seem to be a majority view if you look too much online and, and maybe talk to people too much today. It seems that one of the
0: uh, theologians that you cite, perhaps you've already cited either Calvin or or, or Thomas Aquinas, but made reference to the governing politician, the ruler, the magistrate, that kind of thing as having an office from God based upon scripture that is uh, not far different or below that of of a church pastor or minister.
1: Right. And this is where you get into that God rules through uh, his church. God rules through governments both exist and they are distinct and there needs to be a distinction held. I don't think that scripture supports a kind of theocracy necessarily that combines them into one. Uh, And I think you can see that even in where they get their knowledge. If you look at Psalm 19, for example, the first half is extolling what we can know of God from nature, what we can know of God from his creation. And then it goes to talking about his law. And love for his law, and learning from his law, and I think those two lenses are uh, often the primary lenses that the, the the state and the church get their knowledge from nature with the state, and from scripture with the church. Um, even it, not that there isn't some overlap, but I think that that um, uh, supports and and builds on that. These institutions may be distinct from each other, but they're unified in where their ultimate authority comes from. Their ultimate authority comes from God, and there and that um, I think another example that I use is in, in the pieces that there are instances, particularly in Exodus twenty-two, Psalm eighty-two, where these rulers are called gods, little g gods, and how do you not make that idolatry? Obviously, the Bible's not. Mm-hmm positioning us for idolatry. Yeah. It's been interpreted, I think, rightly throughout most of Christian history as just saying these are rulers and they're imaging God. And again, that there is a dignity to that that we must respect. Uh, it is exercising a little bit of God's own authority delegated to them. And again, uh, that therefore we shouldn't think of it as lowly as we, we sometimes do today. So,
0: rulers, they are in one sense imaging God, you may have explained this to some extent, but imaging God who of course has all dominion and all power, but but rulers, magistrates, politicians have been, if you will, delegated a certain amount of that dominion and power by God to use in a way that he would sanction.
1: Right, and that's where I think you just have to ask the fundamental question, what is politics? And politics, I think you can say uh, this may not be the perfect definition, but it is the exercise of power grounded in law for the pursuit of justice, uh, justice and righteousness. Actually, I would say, and God does so; He does that uh, in in a with His omnipotent power, with His perfect law, with His inerrant justice, because He is holy and. Human beings, human rulers are supposed to image that. Think of Psalm 72, where it begins by asking God, give the king your justice and your righteousness, O Lord, Mm -hmm. your righteousness, the righteousness of God. And uh, I think that that also shows the limit of politics as well. Uh, Rulers don't live forever. God's rule is forever. That's a limitation Uh, related. God's power is infinite human rule is limited and for reasons i'll mention in just a second that's a good thing Mm -hmm. Um, uh, our laws and our justice is imperfect even if it is supposed to image gods as much as possible so uh, you know you you don't want to turn political rulers into big g god that's actually the temptation i think that comes out of the fall in the garden of eden is to be like god but to image him in a way that is submissive to his rule, submissive to his power, submissive to his justice, is perfectly in line with how I think the Bible looks at politics and how Christians throughout much of history have then taken scripture and tried to apply it. So, you're saying hu-
0: human rule is, is limited, it's a good thing, because of the tendency for, for man to want to gain more and more power, if you will?
1: And yes, and, and and the gaining of power is obviously connected with human fallenness. The fact that human mm-hmm. beings will have, uh, sin has marred their reason, so their thinking, but it's also marred their hearts. And that's why you have limitations on human rule that don't exist for God because we are sinful and God is not. And that comes up in scripture as well. There are several Psalms. Psalm 82, again, is one example where... God comes down and speaks to human rulers and upbraids them, attacks them, uh, uh, condemns them because they have not exercised their rule in his image. They have oppressed helpless people like the, the fatherless and the widow. They have acted for selfish gain and sinful gain. And one thing he tells them besides the fact that they're wrong is to say that, um, They are human beings and will die like human beings. And I think that's a double warning. One, they're not like God because they are mortal. Two, uh, God can punish human rulers, as we see in in various instances of the Bible, and, and human peoples as well uh by by uh giving them sickness death other things so uh again uh uh, the dignity of politics is tied up in god's holiness god's righteousness god's goodness and human beings that participate in it should do so as human beings as creatures of the divine recognizing their own limitations due to their finitude and due to their sinfulness
0: requirements or demands that god would put upon the person who is considering i'm thinking particularly of a believer but is considering entering the field of politics you've obviously made the case already that believers can be politicians without shame regardless of the view or esteem that politics is often held in today Can you talk a little bit about what some of those demands are if somebody is thinking, am I called to do
1: this? Right. And I think uh, recognize its origin from God, recognize God's uh, template and example. So study his law the law as it's revealed in nature, the laws as it's revealed in scripture and think about how that might apply. And that's not always the easiest translation, but how it might apply to us now. It's not one-to-one that whatever happened in Israel happens now. We're in a new age, uh, a new Testament, uh, but the, the nature of justice and righteousness doesn't change. So I think the person should study that and they should be someone who then submits to God and asks for wisdom and wisdom that is particular to politics There uh, and, and ask that that wisdom that is particular to politics would shine in them. In fact, uh, another quote that I used from Calvin that I think might be helpful here is, uh he says but it must be laid down as a principle that no man is qualified for governing a commonwealth unless he has been appointed to it by god and be endued with uncommon excellence so it should be in submission to god it should be looking to god it should be something that you're skilled in and uh and and maintaining that submissive humility to god and god's law i think is the first and primary a way that 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 one that is called to this must must discern their calling and then act on it. You use the word humility, which is not
0: a, a word that typically comes up in conversations in about politics, right?
1: Exactly, and that's I think one of the hardest things because you are exercising a particularly godlike power in the exercise of politics. You may be over men and women who praise you, who even adore you. We have a lot of that in politics, even today when people tend to look at it as a dirty business. And therefore, there is a lot of temptation to not be humble. There is a lot of temptation to puff you up, to become like Nebuchadnezzar. If you look at Nebuchadnezzar, when God judges him, it's when he says, look at what I've done. Look at my power. Look at my glory. And so um, I think that what Christianity particularly offers a a a notion of righteousness besides a notion of justice is it offers to not make people godlike to realize their place in the universe and if anything i think a lot of our totalitarian systems in the history of the world have been from the system or a ruler within the system thinking that he or she is god if not literally then at least in practice and so i think that humility is not natural to human beings because of sin It's not natural to politics and that Christianity offers the capacity to um, be tempered by that and therefore to rule more justly than maybe someone who doesn't have that understanding of the world.
0: Well, we're talking about uh, the piece "Reviving the Christian Dignity of Politics" with the author, Dr. Adam Carrington. He is associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and of course, we've been talking about principles, biblical principles from Scripture directly, Dr. Carrington, and also uh, theologians who have commented on the Scripture uh, about that Christian dignity of politics. And I'm wondering what is the value uh, to, to kind of give us a sort of a practical look at it in studying the lives. Of Christian politicians, whether in the U.S. or whether elsewhere, who governed self-consciously from a Christian worldview perspective, like a William Wilberforce, for example.
1: Right. I think that it offers several things that are helpful. Uh, One is, if you just have principles, those can be very abstract. And one of the challenges of politics is to make the universal particular, to take what is just for everyone and to ask in this time and place, what is the best application of justice there? So the use of money can be a great example there. What should the tax laws look like? What should the laws regulating property look like? And we have a concept of property and just laws regarding taxation in general, what can be oppressive or what can be not oppressive. But looking at your time and place and looking at what that application looks like is an art and a skill that uh, you maybe get examples of in scripture, maybe what Joseph does when he knows a famine is coming in Exodus. uh, But is not necessarily one to one? And I think the more you study great leaders who were informed by scripture, but see how they then turned around and applied it to their time and place. Will give you a better skill for how to do so for yourself. Um, it isn't one to one. It takes wisdom, uh, it takes skill, and those things are given by God. But it isn't that it's not like putting together a, a chair that you get from IKEA, yeah. right, or a bookshelf. Right. Um, and I think the more you study how men and women have done it throughout history, the more you'll maybe see how you can do it here and now. You can learn from their mistakes. You can learn from their their accomplishments and i'd say in the case of wilberforce you can learn from their perseverance that uh the the old phrase rome wasn't built in a day well great causes of justice god may bless in time it may not be immediate uh it may not be uh that 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 you that you don't have many failings that you don't have many times where you may want to give up and i think that is another thing that christian biography can help in these instances would you
0: refer to anybody else besides William Wilberforce? Maybe somebody in the USA, a, a life, a Christian politician's life that's worth studying, considering, um, seeing how these principles were fleshed out in the in the real world.
1: Uh, I think that you can study uh, certainly certain movements, and I think that there were men say at the founding era. Um, you can look at John Witherspoon, who was president of Princeton, and but very involved in politics. Um, I think Alexander Hamilton in his later life, he sort of fell away from the faith and then came back to it. I think he is he is a good example uh, in the early early founding. And and one I'd give as an example that may seem strange, but it's actually because of how his heart was changed after politics was Andrew Jackson. Mm. So a man who is very consumed by, I think, some unchristian principles, some even hateful principles, uh, while in politics, and then had a conversion late in life where he was forced to forgive his enemies and brought to tears. Uh, I, I've read from the historical record in, in doing so. Uh, so I think those might be some some examples. Um, you know, we, I, I think there's a lot a lot of others that I, I I could point to too, but I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Christian movements, uh, parts of the abolitionist movement. I'll just say that were, um, you know, imperfect at times, but were very much informed by the idea that God has created all men equal in his image. And so I think that would be a movement to go along with particular persons that you could look at.
0: Well, our time is going very quickly. I did want to ask you, cite a famous Bible commentator Matthew Henry in your piece, Reviving the Christian Dignity of Politics.
1: He weighs in. Uh, what does he say? So he, I think, is, is obviously, I, I've never known a pastor that doesn't seem to have him on his shelf. Yeah. And he, in particular, I brought him in for his commentary on Psalm 82 that I've referenced before. And one, one thing he says is that good magistrates, I'm quoting here, good magistrates who answer the ends of magistracy, sorry, are as God. Uh, some of his honor is put upon them. They are his vice regents, and a great blessing to any people. And I think he's just echoing some of the other themes we, we we've seen here. And shows, by the way, some of the other I've quoted people from the Middle Ages. I've quoted people from the Reformation era. He's writing uh, more in the 19th century. That this is consistent. That good magistrates are acting as God. They're acting uh in the place of God. And the thing I think he adds that maybe we haven't talked about is the blessing they are to a people if they rule well. Uh God gives bad rulers at times as a curse, a condemnation, but he gives good rulers as a blessing. And that we should be thankful when we have good rulers and we when we have bad rulers, uh, pray for their improvement, pray for maybe better rulers and uh i think that 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 shows that that the dignity of politics can also be the blessing of politics when it's done the way that god ordains maybe this is an obvious question dr carrington but taking all
0: that you've said into consideration to this point what what should what do you suggest should be the christian orientation uh, toward politics and even politicians
1: it recognized its potential and therefore don't underestimate it, but recognize its limitations, so therefore don't uh, attach too much to it. And on that, I think what you realize is there's great potential for good to be done here and now for breaking in the kingdom where possible, but that the ultimate realization of perfect rule will be when God returns, when Christ returns. And to hold that tension, the already and the not yet operates in politics as well and therefore to pray for our rulers as human beings, but as human beings that have uh, a, a task ordained by God. And one example I will give, I think, is Psalm 20. Psalm 20, I think, lays out how that psalmist is praying for the King of Israel. And I think that there are images of how we can pray for our rulers as well, uh, even in a different context. So uh, recognize politics as potential and its limitations and wait for the ultimate in of the kingdom when Christ returns. That's a hard uh, juxtaposition, but one that I think that we're called to and that can give politics both its dignity and its limits at the same time. Well, your piece
0: is uh, Reviving the Christian Dignity of Politics. Um, my guest has been Dr. Adam Carrington. He uh, teaches at Hillsdale College. He's associate professor of politics there. Well, if people would like to read this article, Dr. Carrington, where can they find it uh, online? Uh,
1: they can find it on the uh, publication Ad Fontes, which is part of the Davenant Institute uh, that does a lot of this resourcing and bringing back the great thinkers protestant thinkers particularly of the past and is uh, reviving especially lo- looking at politics and society but yes at that publication and it's there online for for people that might be interested in looking further You've been
0: listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Adam Carrington, professor of politics at Hillsdale College. We've been discussing his piece, Reviving the Christian Dignity of Politics. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Deborah Murkey on her gripping story of faith, family, and miraculous grace.
1: I went to visit her the next time in the jail And she asked me, she said, there's no forgiveness for what
0: I've done, is there? And when I asked her forgiveness from who? And she said, God, I had to tell her the truth. (laughs) And that really was about killing me because I didn't want to tell her the truth. I didn't want to tell her that, no, through Jesus Christ. And if you're sincerely sorry, you know that through Jesus Christ, yes, even this can be forgiven. That's tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.